Welcome to episode 77 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, before we begin the show, brother, um, I was thinking since you and I had a chance to see each other in uh, New York City uh, this week. In the flesh. um, In the flesh. In the flesh. Just to kind of touch that you're real. (laughs) Yes. Make sure that you're not. I don't have a virtual partner. It's actually. A virtual partner. A a virtual webby co-host. I was thinking, why don't we create a little bit of a. Of a bar environment here. Hey guys, can you cue the uh, the, the bar crowd noise? Perfect. Yes, I love this. Okay, this now starts to feel like you and I went up to Harlem and went to one of your favorite restaurant or in taco uh, joints. And uh, hey, sir, can you please? Uh, no worries if you can just pour just a nice refreshing drink. It's kind of hot today. Ah. Oh. That just sounds perfect. All right, let me have a drink here. All right, now I can tell you what's been going on, brother. But before anything, how are things with you? Things are good. So do you want to share with everybody what you and I were doing in the city this week? Sure, sure. We went to a screening, uh, a screening and an after party, something that we don't often do. And it's for a film that's directed by Joseph Kaczynski. It's a film called Spiderhead. Hello again. Sorry I'm late, Mr. Epnesty. Not late at all. That's Spiderhead. We're proud of our work. Presence in this facility, while technically a punishment, is a privilege. Where have you been? Drug study. In science, we have to explore the unknown. They've been testing me up and down, a lot weirder stuff than usual. This is new frontier stuff here. Before we begin, I need your permission to administer Dan 40. This place can really mess with your head. Drip on. Acknowledge. Drip on. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Yeah, acknowledge. Let's do this. Where are we getting this? Whoa. This doesn't feel right. Time to worry about crossing lines was a lot of lines ago. Our work will save lives. Not just one life, many lives. We're making the world a better place. What you want is redemption. And this is how you're gonna find it. We're selling peace and harmony itself. Beautiful people get away with too much, and I say that having benefited myself from time to time. 
now. Spiderhead sounds to me sort of like a James Bond novel. Dun, 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 dun. Spiderhead. And so <laughs> I, I went into it knowing nothing. The only thing I knew is the log line. And the log line is something like, how far would you go to save human nature? And I thought, okay, this is science fiction. It's got Chris Hemsworth in it. It's got Miles Teller in it. And it's got Journey Smollett in it. Now, Joseph Kosinski is riding high. He's got the number one film in the world. It's the top grossing film ever, I think, for Paramount, ever, I think, for Tom Cruise. You're riding high. So whatever I might have thought about Spiderhead going in, in terms of, you know, this is a director who did Tron Legacy, which was okay. I must say I like the premise a lot more. Then, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spiderhead was 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 too much of a hey. Here's what we think about the world. Here's the way we think the world should be. But the execution, as much charm as Chris Hemsworth has, as Journey Smollett and Miles Teller have. Listen, I- I've come to see Mike. It's just it's just evident. Doesn't matter anything you see on screen, anything you read. Story is first, not the acting, not the production, not the setting. Those things are all ancillary, complementary things. But the story has to be tight. And I just felt like it got way too absurdish. It got way too philosophically empty. It all seemed forced and not real. There are a few things I think were wrong with this film. And as you say that, you're, you're sort of, I'm, I'm having flashbacks of the film. The premise of the film is this, for those who don't know. It's about this facility called Spiderhead. And it's run by this very handsome, is he a scientist? Uh, who is he? We're not quite sure. But he's running things. And they're doing experiments with these drugs that actually make you laugh at a sad story and be attracted to people who you shouldn't be attracted to. Let's just say that. And he believes that he can make the world happy and, and everybody will love everybody and there'll be no more ugliness. Or at least this is what he's telling his subjects. But the subjects and his experiments start to take a slightly dark turn. And that's part of the problem. It's only slightly dark. It only suggests all these great ideas, concepts, and it never, like you said, it never quite really delves deep into some of the moral things that are in question here other than to suggest that they're going on and i think at a certain point the film just kind of meanders like okay where are we going yeah like what's happening here okay yeah what's the point of this um let me let me take a more of a broader view Mm. outside of the review of this film to kind of really talk about more about life i'm talking about the personal experience of going back to a movie theater, Mike, mm, right? Um, mm, of mm. a sort of a renormalization of, or, or, or a, a jumpstart to once again, try to get back to normalcy. Um, did you feel now that we've had some glamor in this post COVID world, which is still COVID, but we feel everybody, you know, it feels like everybody's been more like, 
listen, if we have COVID, we're going to treat it like the flu. We're going to live with it and move on with our lives. That's exactly, that's what it feels like out there. Uh, that's not what it feels like. That's exactly what it's like out there. You know, combine that with the fact that, you know, there's a bunch of people who didn't really believe in it anyway. And then we have, as human beings, as you've heard me say, an enormous capacity f- to be in denial. So. What what play? What, what, play? Right. what are you talking about? So, so going we, to the got, game. we 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 got a, a nice little uh experience of glamour again, and I wanted to know if you missed it, if you desire it. Do you want to be at the parties? Do you want to be talking to the celebrities? Is it like it used to be, or is it different now? That's a very good question. I mean, I think things are always different when you come back and revisit them. You know, you have a different perspective. You know, I do think it doesn't have quite the, the you know, the, the as they say, the bloom is off the rose for me to an extent. I do enjoy seeing movies in the theater with an audience. But at the same time, I also don't enjoy seeing movies in the theater. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What, what does that mean? Yeah, I'll tell you what it means. Like, on the one hand, I love the shared experience. I love the the ooh and the ah, especially if it's an exciting film or a horror film or, or a comedy and everybody's laughing, everybody's getting it. And, and it's infectious. I love that. But at the same time, I'm six foot two. The seats yeah. I was in, it was like not even close to comfortable. So, I'm sitting s- practically sideways. In okay. parentheses, uh, we were at the Paris Theater. So Netflix yes. had emailed us, you know, uh, hey, would you like to come to the Paris Theater to catch Netflix's global premiere of Spiderhead? Miles Teller was there. Joseph Kosinski was there. Journey Smollett was there. A few other celebrities. A lot of Condé Nast executives, including David Remnick, the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker. Agnes Chu, who is the woman that's now taking the Condé Nast articles. Yes. And turning them into some into you know, IPs. Form of scripts. And, that's right. Intellectual yeah, and property. I, I, they have articles and short stories because this one's based on a short story. That's yeah. the new thing, by the way, in the industry now. Like publishing is like, how can, I mean, they used to do books forever, but articles really wasn't a thing until maybe 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago. But it's, I feel like now they're really trying to almost like extend out a universe or a franchise around it. You know, I felt more like Mike. I no longer need this. I can live without this. No totally, problem, brother. Totally. Dude, I was there before the pandemic, but yes, I 100%. <laughs> I, totally, <laughs> I totally agree. And and that's not to disparage, you know, our industry. I enjoy all the schmoozing and then the celeb pics and all that. But yeah, I, I do think when it comes down to what you're talking about life, you know, what's important. Uh, hmm, you know, do I want to sit? I, I sat next to one woman, just kept looking at her her iPhone during the screening, uh, and next to her, her friends' iWatch kept going off, which is like a mini phone, bright in your face on the left, and things that just like wow, you know, would I have rather be in my home theater as mm-hmm. we talked about at the beginning of this pandemic? That's all nice, and comfy, mm-hmm. and watch Spiderhead. Yeah, I would. We then went to, we had tickets and we brought our other halves to head out to the after party, the reception following the film from the Paris. So we walked over to Avra, uh, beautiful inside, really awesome. and Multi-level. Uh, multi-level. Questlove was there and I saw that you had taken a photo with this living legend now Okay, Dude, you and I, I saw him. I said, look, there's 
there's Questlove. He was right. here, man. He's supporting the film. And Miles Teller was there too. Keep it That's going. right. He was right there too. And I had seen them the night before at an event for the Television Academy, the Emmys, because I'm an Emmy voter. Uh, and he was there for the offer from Paramount Plus, which is the making of The Godfather, but in scripted version. And, and, he you, and, and, and we're going to come put a peg in that. We're going to come back. I want to hear your offer story. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Wait till you hear that story. That's a okay, crazy yeah. story. Um, so I left with my wife and then all of a sudden, like the next morning, it's quest love and you, how did that happen? Uh, you know, for me, it, you know, first of all, I, I saw the, the documentary he won the Oscar for, and I loved it. And, and I love, I don't know if you know, they're going to be doing that, that concert, that, that lost footage of the concert that, that was happening in Harlem way, 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 way back then is actually coming back next year. They're going to be doing it again. They're, they're relaunching that concert series. And largely, I think, because of the popularity of that film. But I mean, what he's done, who he is, what he's done his career, his, his you know, he wrote a book on creativity. Uh, he's an amazing drummer. His 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 day gig or night gig, whatever you want to call it. I just think he's a he's a living legend. And sometimes, and and I feel bad because he's standing next to Journey Smollett, and I walked up to Questlove, and I was like, you know, dude, I just had to shake your hand. Enjoyed you. Didn't say anything to Journey Smollett, and then I'm walking back, going, wow, was that really rude? I don't know. Well, because it's usually a man going up to the woman who's like, excuse me, Journey. Yeah, exactly, exactly, her. exactly. Oh, she oh, had plenty kinda... of... Yeah, I, I had to go and give Quest Love some love. that I wanted to talk to you on this episode is a movie I had a chance to watch. It's out on HBO Max now. It's called Father of the Bride. Sophie? Cannot hear yet. Fathers play a big role in their daughter's life. It's a special bond that only they share. Hello! And even when she's all grown up, she's still daddy's little girl. Dad? Sorry to spoil your happiness, but we're getting a divorce, Marcel Tov. Mommy, Papi, this is Alain Castillo. We don't want some big fancy wedding, and we want to pay for it. Two lawyers out of college working for a nonprofit are going to pay for the wedding. Billy, Papi. I'm the father of the bride, and I will be paying for the wedding, and I'm going to be walking my daughter down the aisle. The wedding planner is here in 20 minutes. Wedding planner? Love Amelia! So, what are we thinking about theme? Theme? 
We don't want a Catholic wedding. What are you talking about? Who's going to officiate then? My guide, Monica, from the Zen Center in New York. So a yoga class instead of a wedding. Hey, caramba. This is my father. For the wedding. Oh, my God. How rich is this guy? Gonna have some champagne and come aboard. What is he, a Bond villain? We should go over the ground rules. Can we hold hands? We can. Can we dance? If necessary. How about a kiss? Absolutely not. Daddy, what is the budget that we're working with? How about that? Yes. I really like him. He's nothing like us. Maybe that's the point. You don't watch sports? No. You play sports? I like hiking. Things have been coming at me very fast. It's time for me to embrace the future. I got your back. Showtime, baby. Can we dance? Ready? Yes, and you? No. Now, this is the third adaptation from the original uh, with Spencer Tracy back in the 1950s and then Steve Martin in the 80s. And now we have this like Latino version uh, written by Matt Lopez and directed by Guy Alasraki. Um, this is a very different take from the previous Father of the Brides you've seen. I mean, I think it uses the spine of that silent torture that fathers go through when they see their daughters wed some other man, you know. Um, and I think Andy Garcia crushed it. I, I think that this was a very American Latino uh, film as opposed to a Latin American film, you know, it, it really speaks more to the American Latino experience that comes in from either an exile or an immigrant. And I love the way that the film in particular really stays away from uh, stereotypes and cliches and really presents Hispanics as wealthy and ultra wealthy people, you know? And I think that that's invigorating if you're a Hispanic, you know? I think it's invigorating to see a dignification of your culture, you know? And we understand, I mean, if you don't know by now that on-screen representation or on-screen visualization is influential in the way, too many studies have been done about how television and film and stories really influence our perceptions of the world. If we see something there, it reinforces the fact. Yeah, I'm not going to fly if it's Superman. I get that. That's sort of fantasy. But if it's within the realm of truth, it blurs the lines. Should I believe it? Should I not? You know, uh, am I succumb to it? Whatever it may be. But seeing Hispanics in this light, I think, creates a sense of we're not bad people. We're not villains. We're not here to take over. We're not here to do damage to you. Don't fear us. And these types of films, I think, kind of get to the to, 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 to the place of we're just like you. Hispanics have the same challenges, the same nuances, the same prejudices, you know, that other people have. And I think that's one of the great things about this film. And I know you had a chance to see it. And I'm really curious in knowing, since this is not for your target audience of an African-American, I'm curious to know what a black person thought about this Latino film. 
Well, you know, for me, it's interesting that you call call it a Latino film because, t- yes, clearly it's a quote-unquote Latino take on uh, the father of the bride story. And I, I tend to think, just to give context, I think a good story is one that really allows us to talk about what it is just to be human. You know, what, what, what love means, what relationships mean, what, what pride means, all the things. This movie hits upon so many things that while, yes, it was about, you know, a Mexican family and a Cuban family going to get together and, and the differences and, and, and the, um, the similarities, but at the end of the day, it's really about um, characters. It's about a, a, a man who, who has spent too much time trying to build a life for his family and not enough time with his family about uh, 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 daughters who are trying to carve their own way in the shadow of a man like that. And it's about a wife who has stood by for so long watching her husband not watch her that she's finally going to make a move. So there's so many things going on. I, I, I was, I thought this movie, there's a lot of times you watch a movie and it's good and then you go, oh, it made a misstep and oh, it misstep there. I didn't think this film made any missteps. I thought, like you said, this is some of Andy Garcia's best work. I really have always liked Isabella Merced. Dora the Explorer. Explorer. I always liked her. I thought she was really good. I thought, you know, she has a small but strong role in this as well as the younger sister. There's just so many things about it I like. Seeing Latinos and and wealth and all that, that is great. But what I really loved about this was just that humanizing, just those little moments, the things that weren't for us, the commentary on what it is to be Latin in America really stood out to me. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what were the things about this film that really stood out to you that you feel, wow, they got this right, or I don't see enough of this? I think when it comes to what I was looking for, look, I was looking clearly to be entertained, but let's be honest, I was also really looking at this to see if the film was going to be the next great Latino hope. Uh, mm. The great Latino savior, you know, in the Heights mm. was not able to do that. Uh, Dora the Explorer that came out, you know, I think it was from Paramount. Uh, that didn't do it. it. It seems like nothing we do now catches fire in the mainstream national conversation. And so the question was, will Father of the Bride be the one to catapult us positively into the center of the national conversation? And, you know, at a time, Mike, when we know uh, this is why it's such a top of the radar thing for me, because as you know, uh, any film or television or 10 episode television series that's out right now uh, either is not seen by anybody or is canceled. I mean, look at One Day at a Time, Vida, Hentified, Mystery Iglesias, On My Block, The Baker and the Beauty, Promised Land from Matt Lopez that just got a first look deal uh, with Warner Brothers or ABC, I believe. Um, and this guy can't seem to get something, you know, on on, on national network. So um, those were interesting things to me. But I don't think that that this film in particular is going to suffer that fate. Um, first of all, it's a streaming film. So metrics won't count towards this. All it has to do to really succeed is gain good reviews from viewers and critics. 
Doesn't have to prove anything at the box office numbers. Uh, clearly, no streaming numbers matter since HBO, Netflix, and a lot of the streaming platforms don't provide any data on any of its content. So for me, I was really looking at to see if this movie was going to regress us as a culture or to push us towards being recognized as a culture worthy of telling its stories. And I think that this movie did it. And I think it did it through a couple of ways, right? So first of all, the movie, my immediate reaction was that the movie felt American first. Mm. It didn't feel like a Latino movie first, which is what I've mainly seen throughout my whole life. Um, This felt like, an American family as opposed to a Latino family. It's like an American family that happens to be of Latino descent. And I think that that is probably one of the hardest things to do as a writer because people don't usually do that. They just want you to be damn Latino, meaning that your English is broken, that you're challenged in this country, that the assimilation process is too difficult for you, that all you want to do is go back to your home country. All of these things that we have grown up in the last 40 years here in America, they're kind of gone in this film. What you're seeing are these very cleverly crafted, well-crafted dialogues, points, plot points that really get to the culture clashes, to the prejudices, to the assimilations of these family as American families, as American Latino families. So for example... I love that Lopez constructed this, you know, clever moment of cultural strife. I'm not sure if you remember that moment where Billy Herrera, which is Andy Garcia, who plays this character incredibly, he defends him and his family's choice to speak English as their primary language. That's the scene I was talking about. I love that scene. I love that scene because there is, amongst Latinos, why are you speaking English when we all know Spanish. When we're at home, yeah, like under yeah, your so, own roof. Right, but but then he makes the geographic location. It's like, Papa, I'm not in Cuba. Like, I speak the language of the country I live in, and we have assimilated, and we choose to speak in English first, and we've gotten used to this lifestyle. And, you know, that really says a lot about if you study the history of Cuba, We understand that Cuba, from the very get-go, was an island that was captured by the Spaniards. The Spaniards lived there and settled there as part of New Spain. And there was another moment where Andy Garcia, as a Cuban, says, hey, we're not immigrants, we're exiles. So that's a form of hierarchy. That is a form of power structure. It's like, do not demean me by saying that I am an immigrant. And this is like the reputation that Cubans have, that they think very highly of themselves, that they think of themselves more as Europeans or whites, much like the Argentines have that reputation as well. And so Mexicans, which hold a lot of cultural power in the United States, it's a great rival to the small, minute group of Cubans that mostly live in Florida. You know, there's, of course, in New York, New Jersey, in Bergen Line, you have a lot of Cubans as well and throughout the United States, but they're small compared to the Mexican culture. So to rival them together in Miami, which, by the way, if you look at the setting. The setting was very Spaniard, old colonial, you know, very, very, it it felt rich and wealthy. And and like, these are prince and kings, you know, people we should know, people that whether you're Hispanic or not, I need to know you, right? There's that feeling 
of a privilege and prestige throughout the film. I love the fact that Terrence Blanchard, a African-American jazz musician, was brought on to do a lot of the jazz bits. And if you notice jazz, what it does, it diffuses the Latino-ness uh, of the film, the texture of Latino, and it makes it more Americanized. Anytime you well, hear jazz. you know, it's it's true, but I got to also say it also felt like like that Cuban jazz, which which was brought here and popularized popular yes. and influenced jazz quite a bit. So I'm with you. Yes. Yeah, man. So it kind of turned into this Cuban jazzy thing between America, uh, black and then, you know, the brown, which is, you know, Latinos. And there was like a nice little mix there. Now, as much as I love those moments, even probably like the big highlight moment was when Andy and the Cubans form a wall and kind of joust against the Mexicans and their wall and prejudices come out. And this is the part that as soon as I saw it, I said, this is a great representation. This is a great visual example of why politically we are not a monolith. Oh, but but you all guys are all Latinos. It's like, wait, 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 wait. In this country, whites have labeled us as Latinos, but but we don't know what the fuck that word means in Latin America. You know, in Latin America, you're not Latin Americans, you're you're, you're Cubans, Mexicans. That's what you, that's your identity, that's your label until you get here. And so because the ground that they're in, that they're living is American, essentially white ground, there's that form of assimilation that we see in the movie. But then there's also the don't put me in one group. I am better than Mexicans. Like throughout the whole movie, there was this tension that Andy Garcia was better than the Mexicans, right? And then all of a sudden, he starts noticing that the Mexicans have more money than he does. Like triple the amount of money like ultra Dude, wealthy no, no, no. mega wealthy significant like supposedly wealthy, right? right significant he was one of, he was like he was uh the owner the the mexican dad uh of the son that's going to marry yeah, his daughter is yeah, the exactly. owner of like this gigantic brewery the number two in the country so that was pretty exactly and he and there was all this prejudice because he was probably mexican and he was an immigrant from mexico and that he was going to teach him because he's the wealthy one how dare anyone else be more wealthy than he is and a lot of the movies about tradition versus the new dynamics of 2022 and that i thought was a really interesting way of kind of creating this memorable character and and to me one of the most memorable characters of the year uh this man that you can see slowly going from like the peak of mount everest <laughs> then like plunging to death valley man in a way where the world passed him by. And yes, I think these are all the universal elements that we all share, like those moments. But Mike, as a Latino, I'm looking for other things, man. I'm looking to see if you're making us look bad. I'm looking to see if there's any criminals. Uh, I'm looking to see if there's any maids, you know, that that you're just clicheing on. I didn't see any of that. Is This was... As charming as you can get, you love the characters, you love the pain of Andy Garcia, you knew that he was going to give in, but how was he going to do it? The white people are treated as outsiders, looking out in, you know, not in out. They're never the center of attention. So I also kind of 
if this is going to be part of the new American story, right, which is multicultural, which is new majority, if you're going to create stuff like that, it's going to be very interesting to see how white gatekeepers feel about themselves, their race, their skin color being seen as foreign in a lot of these studio films that are coming out on streaming. Do they feel good about that? Will they at some point... Court is now in session. Hey guys, have you been seeing these, you know, Hispanic and black movies? Have you noticed how they're portraying us? Like in Watchmen, we're the villains. We're always the villains. I feel like now all of a sudden people are looking at us in the bars everywhere. As the villains, I can't walk into a Asian, Latino, black bar, restaurant, you know, anywhere because I feel like I'm the villain. It's these movies that are making us look bad. We got to stop them. Head of the villain, make sure that no more white people are looked as foreigners. Let's make ourselves the center of attention. <laughs> okay, there's my theatrical performance for today, Mike. Well, I was going to swell up the uh, applause there. <laughs> but, but you know, let me say this, though. What, what's interesting about that, uh, just as, as a slight sidebar on white presence versus the white view, and because we've gotten the white view on this story, for instance, and I really think that that, that notion, that fear that you're just talking about, that's what James Patterson was just talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw. He, 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 James Patterson. Is oh, yeah, famous, the author. Famous, yeah, famous author who in an interview says how white males are facing racism. But that has to be something because if I'm feeling it about them, like, wait a minute. I'm starting to notice this pattern that they're that's what we have always been in white movies. The foreigners, and now we're putting them, and I'm wondering if they're noticing it and if they're gonna do something about it. Because Mike, they are the gatekeepers, they're the people's in power, they can influence change to anything. So how long is this window gonna last? Well, I think uh films like this will keep pushing that window open because what what this does for me and this comes back to something you've heard me say probably many times is that this is the power of comedy you see you couldn't do a drama that dealt with all the issues that this movie deals with because i could just go down a list of so many things that this movie deals with or has representation whether it's lgbt whether it's uh um toxic masculinity whether it's class wars there's so many things going on here because matt lopez is you know a, a total pro in my opinion that's why he just mm-hmm. got that first look deal just signed with caa in may that that he's that guy He's the kind of guy that can do it because this is a man that comes from, he knows how to operate in that world. You know, if there's such a thing as code switching when there's, you know, you're interacting with people, there's such mm-hmm. a thing as code switching in storytelling where you are, understand all the things you have to do. He's written all these Disney adaptations and whatnot. Now he can get a movie made, speak mm-hmm. about all these things, affect things, make change without the folks who gave him the money to make this film even realize are being said. Not to mention that I really enjoyed all the behind the scenes on this film being Latinos. From the costume designer, sound designer, when you look at the credits, you're like, wow, in major roles 
all these Latinos. And that's because you've got a Latino writer and a Latino director. Oh, and a Latino producer. And a Latino producer working in a system that is white male dominant. But the, the question is, did the movie feel American to you versus a Latin independent Absolutely. Chilean Absolutely. film? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. American. Yeah, so, absolutely. so what was it about that? And what Guy, the director, the Mexican director had talked about is like, look, I, I've shot family uh, films before, family con- conflicting films, you know. What I felt I wanted to bring to this was a very Nora Ephron, James Brooks, Mike Nichols. Paul Perez said, I know that if I do a straight up Latino movie for the Univision or Telemundo audience, I'm never going to make my mark. We all understand at this point that in Hollywood, it's all about mainstream. It's all about getting the white audience to watch your story. It's getting the black audience to watch your story. It's getting the whole non-Latino audience to watch a movie in mass and scale. That's what we have to decode. So he essentially created an American Latino movie that wasn't necessarily meant for Latinos. It was meant for a broader audience, which means a white, pleasing Latino film. And here's how he did it. Let's start with the title of the film. That title is a classic title. It's one that all white audiences have been knowing about since the 1950s. So automatically it has a white household name. So you enter it, if you're a white person, right, that has lived in the last 40 years in America, and someone says, hey, there's a new Father of the Bride on HBO Max. He's like, is that the one with Spencer or Steve? He's like, no, it's a new one with Andy Garcia. He's like, Andy Garcia. But he's already familiar with the plot. So now he's curious to know how they're going to treat it. So Paul is thinking, well, what do I have to do to reel you in? I I, I got you reeled in with the bait of the name. It's an HBO Max, not an HBO Latino. It's not Univision Films or, you know, it's HBO Max. So it's all still English white American. Then you get a cast. Now here's the packaging. They didn't get unknown Latino names to play this. They got Latino actors of Cuban descent who crossed over into the mainstream years ago. Andy Garcia, for a lot of people, he's Italian, he's white. Godfather 3, Oscar nomination. Gloria Stefan is part of the, one of the first groups to break into the mainstream with Miami Sound Machine. Everybody, white, black, Hispanic, across the world sings her songs in English. To a lot of people, she's not even Latina. To a lot of people... She's white American. So you're using now white front-facing Latinos that are very familiar to white America. It's like, well, yeah, Andy's not Latino. Wait, Andy speaks Spanish? What? I didn't know Andy spoke Spanish. It's like the shock and, and, and disbelief that the man, because he has created a perception that is amb- that is ambiguous to whether he's Latino or not. And it plays in his favor. So now, all of a sudden, you're bringing in Adria Arjona, and Adria Arjona has been making waves in the mainstream Hollywood movie system. 
Diego Boneda has been working with Tom Cruise and Alec Baldwin in Rock of Ages. He's been in a lot of English language films already. So now you're creating a cast, a, a crossover cast that is already familiar, that are white or black audiences are already familiar with them from other movies. They created a really great crossover cast. And this packaging is one of the most American Latino packages you can see this year, man. Eugenio Derbez did the valet. I think he did a really good job with that. But this feels more American Latino than that film in itself. And, and, and I think that white audiences should bite. But because there's no metrics, Mike, I'm wondering if this movie was a success or not. It's interesting because uh, the movie is already a success. And, you know, there's a saying in Hollywood that you're never more uh, hot. You're never hotter than before your film comes out. And he's Matt Lopez signed the deal with CAA in May before this movie had hit audiences because it had already been so well received. This is a movie that it hits all the right marks. It does everything that Matt wanted to do because I've been reading, you know, interviews with him about what he wanted to do and responsibility he felt to represent both the, the the similarities and the dissimilarities of Latino culture. And I think he knocked it out of the park. But also, I think here's a guy who knows how to handle a commercial property, who knows right. how to make a comedy work on many levels. I agree with you. You know, it, it's an IP that everybody knows. You know, and it's a comfortable IP. It's been made, you know, the last time it was made and then 30 years later it was made. And now it's been at least 30 years since the last one. So that's a very smart move. I I do think that it's harder with a movie like The Valet uh, uh, to really cross over, which I want to ask you. uh, And this is my question to you is I agree with every single thing you said, but is the future of Latino film adapting i mean we've seen mm-hmm. one day at a time we've seen we've seen I, I i personally hate when there's the black version like the black honeymooners what the black odd couple what I, thank god they bombed you know but they still will do that you know there's the black version of the the this thing or the that foreign movie okay is that the future is that the best way to do it to 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 get an audience to be comfortable should there be a latino home alone where you know little miguel was left alone you know and now you know the banditos you know so is that the way to go okay so this is one of those you know catch 22 things where it's Mm -hmm. one nor the either it's it's neither the chicken nor the egg uh this is complex man and and i'm gonna i'm gonna say some hard cold truths here okay number one the way that i think that 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 Hispanics are going to get across might actually have to be about pleasing white audiences first. And that means speaking their language, so to speak. So what is speaking their language? It's like, let's readapt all the, sh- all, all the movies and all the franchises that you love white audiences. We're going to do the Latino version. We're going to try and get as white as we can with it, but without using a white brush, still going to be a Latino brush, but the format, the genre, the tone, the texture, the the world setting is going to be America. It's going to be white, but with a Latino theme. And maybe that novelty 
might actually work. Because, okay, what is the other scenario, right? The other scenario is that we continue to do Latino stories that are very, very specific. Well, those seem like indie films. One Day at a Time used a classic one, and it lasted how many seasons? I think three or four. That's better than anything else that has come out. So between One Day at a Time, Father Pride that looks like it's doing well, The Valet, which is also a remake of a French film that's doing well as well, that might be it. We might have to sell out to white audiences first to then do the Ang Lee and then do our own stuff. Because, you know, Latinos are now part of Marvel. They're part of DC. So we're starting to see Latinos invade white spaces, and that might be the way to attract white audiences so they can give us the money, the distribution to go scale. Because we've been trying the Latino way since the beginning of cinema, man. And it really hasn't worked until maybe La Bamba and Stand By Me in the late 80s, in 87. That's it. Everything else has been music. But TV and film, we really haven't had a scale global hit. That might be it, Mike. We might have to sell out a little bit in order to get our own stories developed, our own original stories developed later on. Well, that's it for this episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.